Teacher podcast episode number one. So, uh, what's all this then? Who's this guy and why should I listen to this? You may be wondering. Well, my name is Gareth Manning, and I've spent the last 15 years teaching in schools in wildly different geographical and cultural locations all around the world, in more than 10 countries on five continents, actually, and I've learned a lot from experience. I've taught in lots of different classrooms, to be sure, but I've also taught in lots of coffee shops and community centers, in forests and tea plantations, under trees, on mountains, in the middle of two different deserts, and even in a building where genocide was committed. I've taught in traditional schools and progressive schools, so-called at-risk schools and elite ones. I've taught in schools that are great. I've taught in schools that are abysmal. Big schools, small schools, public schools, private schools, for-profit, non-profit, offline, online, good, bad, bad, good. I've taught in loads of them, and I've learned tons, but mostly this. Most schools suck, and most of us know it. Certainly the kids do. But this show isn't just about education in schools which might sound boring to you, though I promise it isn't. This show is about transformative social change. And here it is. Change is upon us. COVID, climate change, racism, inequality, insecurity, fake news, Donald J. Trump. Name your crisis. There is no going back to normal. What is normal, by the way, is not what once was, how life was in the before times, when we may have lived with some semblance of certainty and security, particularly if you're a person born of privilege. No, what is normal, truly normal, is and only can be change. Impermanence, transition, evolution. Life, growth, decay, death. Such is the natural order of things, and Marcus Aurelius is right, for in the ways of nature, no evil is to be found. Change is humanity's only constant. Whether that change is good or bad, however, is largely up to us, the humans, and we are currently sucking at it. So this podcast is all about how to understand, shape, and manage complex, transformative social change. It's about revealing the complex forces that shape and control our lives in ways in which we're not even aware. It's about exploring innovative and actionable ideas people are using and we can use to affect positive transformative change. It's about thinking seriously about how we might act as individuals and groups to make the world a much better place. Every problem in the world is, at its core, ultimately an educational problem. I believe that everything is educational and education is everything. I also believe that we as a species will learn our way out of the sweeping range of seemingly dire predicaments we have dug ourselves into. To do that, however, necessarily requires that we change the way we've been doing things. It is to seriously upset the status quo. It is to usher in a new order of things to imagine and build structures anew. So let's start this podcast by really opening our minds and imagining some different possibilities. Trust me, there are lots and lots of amazing things happening in the educational world right now, but they're much too hidden away. So what I think we really need to do is find the best ideas, options, tools, structures, strategies, whatever, and then amplify them, spread and share them, question them, learn from and experiment with them, make many thousands of beautiful mistakes and chaotically problem solve our way into creating, finally, a truly loving, challenging, fun, flexible, engaging, meaningful, and ultimately human-centered school system. 
The last thing then that I think we should be pushing for is a return to normal. We don't need just reform either, by the way. What we need is to not only punctuate the equilibrium of the educational status quo, what we need is a full quantum evolution in schooling and society. And people, I think one is coming, whether we're ready or not. As an educator, it makes sense that I start this podcasting adventure with a focus on education and schooling. But even if I were not a teacher, I would probably start here because I truly and very, very deeply believe in children, especially the current generation of beautiful, creative, critical kids, the most capable cohort of young people our world has yet seen. Even if I were not a teacher, I'd also start here because it makes sense. So many of the problems in the world in our personal lives start in school. Just think back to your own life. So, on our very first episode, I'm truly grateful to speak with Rebecca Warren about problems and possibilities in education. Rebecca is the head of educational development at the United World College's International Organization. The UWC is an amazing network of 16 schools that are reputed by students, alumni, and staff alike to be some of the absolute best on the planet. The UWC describes itself as a global education movement that makes education a force to unite people, nations, and cultures for peace and a sustainable future. I love that. Rebecca Warren is one of my favorite educational thinkers. Like me, she devours books, constantly plays with ideas, and is super interested in actionable ideas, in what actually works, in detail, on the ground, in concrete ways, to genuinely help people, especially kids. So, if you're interested in education, and really, who isn't, you should get to know Rebecca Warren. We had a great talk. Unfortunately, however, the internet gods intervened in the second half of our conversation where we we're discussing really important issues of racial oppression in schools and the kinds of anti-racist practices that we need to spread, develop, learn from, and improve in order to meet the needs of the most underserved and marginalized kids in our schools. But that didn't happen. Okay, fine. Such is life. Adapt to change. Uh, more episodes to follow, and it's a great excuse to invite Rebecca back. Anyway, let's get started. Here's me, sounding entirely over-caffeinated, as I often am, talking to the brilliant Rebecca Warren of the United World College's International Organization. All right, so Rebecca, how are you doing today? I am very well. I'm warm, actually. <laughs> it's unseasonably cool. warm here in the Netherlands. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, we don't know each other super well, but we met in Bosnia, like, I don't know, about a year ago or so. And you're one of the people who... One of the few people in mental education where it's like, boom, like right away, friend, ally, this is a great person. I want to talk to this person for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours about education. And fortunately, I now have a podcast and you've agreed to come on. So this is perfect. Thank you. And welcome. Yeah, very welcome. And likewise, I, I, I felt the same way and really, yeah, could have continued for hours and hours chatting with you about how to, uh, yeah, dismantle some of the problems within our education system and how to build up better ones. Yeah. So let's talk about that. I, I, I asked you on today to talk about problems and possibilities in education generally. Um, and I think we have a, a lot to say about that. And um, I had kind of like a plan for our talk, but then you came up with this kind of like great idea of having this like quote off kind of thing. And you're like, yo, let's, how about like we each have like three quotes and we respond to each other and we generate discussion that way. And I actually think that's a, a brilliant way to start. My problem was finding three quotes because <laughs> I've got like hundreds of quotes. I used to collect quotes in grad school, but um, I've kind of narrowed it down kind of thing. I don't know if you have three or you have 30 as well, but maybe we'll start with three and then see how it goes. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Sweet. So I'm going to throw out the first one to you. How's that? And just, I, I want to hear your response to this. Is that okay. cool? Perfect. Sweet. Okay. So this is actually one of my favorite quotes. 
Never let your schooling interfere with your education. Mark Twain. Um, yes. <laughs> um, I, yeah, that's a favorite one of, of mine as well. And I think I, when you look at it with, with formal learning and informal learning and what kids actually learn and where and from what. And I have to say, having uh, watched my own kids and how they learn and where they get information from is so complex and interesting and mostly from YouTube. <laughs> um, interesting. I'm astonished that they'll come downstairs and, and tell me all sorts about anything and everything of, of things that they've watched on, on YouTubes or um, yeah, on, on various other media. To me, it's really about uh, seeing the difference between school and education. I think we tend to conflate schooling and education. We see uh, schooling as education when most education, most learning doesn't actually happen in schools. And most learning is a natural process that can't really be controlled. And education is really about, school's really about, sorry, um, I would argue, uh, trying to direct learning through teaching in particular ways to produce particular outcomes. And it does that to an extent, and it does that with a degree of effectiveness, but that is in conflict oftentimes with like the actual learning needs of a kid as a human being. And I think that's really important to recognize as teachers, as educators. I, I think that's one of like the, the found, foundational kind of concepts that anyone going into education really needs to have. I think it also requires a much more flexible approach to actually what is school and what we do and what we consider to be a the sort of playground of learning. Because if you're actually anticipating mm. that between the time of 8.30 and 3.30 that you're going to get your learning needs sort of completely done and from a teacher and from just a very didactic process, then you're kind of completely missing out on A, the fact that there is YouTube, B, the fact that, you know, going on a work experience, um, a placement, an outside expert, um, a visit to a museum, um, like a visit to a business, any sort of thing, but there's the whole world can be your sort of educational playground. And mm. yeah, we're really, really limiting many of the kids and what they're interested in and also where they access their, their their learning and their material from by actually just confining it to the school building. So when I've looked at sort of interesting schools, I think that are in the heart of the city and they actually say that the city is the campus. I love that idea because exactly you can you can go anywhere and do anything. And if you actually generally really curate learning rather than just deliver education, then actually by by the means of actually doing that, you have to go to different places, you have to engage with different experts, you have to look outside that. And if you're doing it in a co-creative process, which I very much believe to kind of boost the student agency, then you actually have to do that with the student themselves and potentially with their family. And so then if you're kind of saying, well, what do you want to learn and how do you want to learn it? Then again, it opens up a sort of world of possibilities. And if you go with a sort of uh, the direction that a student may take you, a, you end up learning a hell of a lot more and lots of things that potentially you didn't know <laughs> as an adult, as I have done many, many times learning from, from my students. Um, but also they kind of lead you into these ways of that they're making connections in their own world for their own selves. So actually, that's really essentially what you want to do for learning is that the kids are sort of mapping out their ideas, their learning pathways, they're making meaning and they're making sense for themselves. And in order to do that, they have to have hooks and things that they are interested in and potentially be based within the community and the places that they can, yeah, make sense of, so. 
Agreed. <laughs> Sweet, give me your quote. Okay, so my one, all right, this is quite a long one, um, and it's from Edmund O'Sullivan, and it's from the Project and Vision of Transformative Education. So I apologize, but I'm going to hit you with my big one first. <laughs> it is, all right. transformative learning involves experiencing a deep structural shift in the basic premise of thought, feeling, and actions. It is a shift of consciousness that dramatically and permanently alters our way of being in the world. Such a shift involves our understanding of ourselves and our self-locations, our relationships with other humans and with the natural world, our understanding of relations of power in interlocking structures of class, race, and gender, our body awarenesses, our visions of alternative approaches to living, and our sense of the possibilities for social justice and peace and personal joy. Okay, uh, <laughs> how am I supposed to react to that? that, that yes, I, <laughs> uh, I, I love that vision of education. I think it's one that I very much uh, feel in alignment with. I think it's uh, one that's vastly different from the dominant model that we see in like the hegemonic schools, traditional schools. Uh, and it's one that I think really needs a lot of unpacking. So what I heard from that is quite a lot. So there's a lot about like uh, understanding, an understanding oneself as an individual and your orientation to the world, developing self-understanding, self-knowledge, self-awareness, uh, but in a social context, uh, understanding one's social positionality with respect to categories of difference, class, race, gender, ability, and so on, uh, and how one has privilege or intersectional disadvantagement within sort of that positioning and what that means. How do we use this information to kind of guide who we are and how we want to take action in the world so that we can make some kind of difference? Uh, it's a very normative concept. It's not a value-free concept. It's all about trying to change the world to uh, with a particular end in mind, one that is about equity, freedom, and inclusion. And I think it's a beautiful, Beautiful, beautiful message. Who said that? Um, it's uh, Edmund O'Sullivan, and this is in his first chapter of a book um, about the project and vision of transformative education. And it was published, All right, well. uh, I think, over a decade ago, originally, because, and again, mm. which means we have the collective wisdom of what we, we already know what we need to do in education. And I know it's only a decade ago, we can go back sort of a century ago, and we already know what we need to do in terms of like what education needs to happen. But yeah, I, I came across this from a friend of mine called um, Andrew Nalani, and we'd had lots of discussions um, in the wake of um, the, the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement, and really kind of having deep conversations about what education is for and, and how we do this. And in exploring some of the issues that were presented, as big, big issues that were presented, I think um, I was looking at, uh, I've, uh, um, if I lose my train of thought, will you edit this a bit, these bits out? Maybe. Don't worry about it. It's all good. Who cares? It's a podcast. We are teachers. So what we're doing is we're modeling project-based learning. We're modeling a uh, bias towards action, failing, uh, happily failing forward. It's all good. Enjoying our lives. Okay. So anyway, what I was thinking about is the, the anti-oppression and anti-racism uh, lens that we were looking at through education and, and looking at what it means to have anti-racist education, what it means to have abolitionist teaching, what it means to have anti-oppression or, or anti-oppressive forces within education, actually just our good education practice. 
Um, and and it's 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 no more simple or no more difficult than that. Um, yes. And and that's again a mind shift from I think as you were saying the very traditional paradigm of education where the model and the mindsets that are still based on neocolonialism, still based on a them and us between sort of adults and students, still based on a punitive structure of education. And I read an article this morning um, in the newspaper about discipline action in the UK and about how they were dealing with schools. And it made my blood boil because again, <laughs> it's not about this kind of idea of hope and the, the sort of agency and pathways and belonging and engagement that we know to be good educational practice. So we know that in terms of how you learn, in terms of your emotional safety, in terms of inclusive practice, in terms of culturally responsive practice, all of those things, they work for students in order for this transformative learning to happen. And when you're in a punitive structure and when you're in this kind of discipline, even the word discipline itself sort of, you know, makes me feel very uncomfortable. Actually, you're not part of a community. You're not part of practices of restorative justice. You're not part of really deeply understanding who your kids are and where they're coming from and honoring them as, them, as their full selves. And therefore, we're not actually then kind of giving them the hope that they themselves can actually support a better future. So when you look at the transformative competencies from like OECD, um, and you look at what they are. So those, those ones about creating new value, about reconciling tensions and dilemmas and about taking responsibility. We're trying to build our students up into being social agents for a better future. And if we're replicating some of the difficult social structures and the oppressive structures currently, then our kids are not learning how they can actually build a better future. And by God, we need a better future for ourselves at this point in time, you know, sort of our, our ecology, our um, social justice issues, um, sort of, yeah, splits within society, democracy at its, um, <laughs> at its very core, they're all under threat at this point in time. And so we need students equipped to be able to actually shape a better future. And yet, we're still within these sort of dogged hierarchies um, and oppressive structures that are that are not um, creating that kind of agency and are not creating the pathways for engagement within these real issues. I think that's actually a really good point. Like, yeah, transformative teaching is just good practice, right? If, if you if we care about the humans in the room and we care about just making them the, the best that we can, we have to have a transformative lens. One that, and transformative meaning combining like restorative justice and social justice, putting those in an intertwined way to really repair harm and to try to change the sort of like the, the imagination kind of like possibility, um, kind of like framework out there, opening kids' minds, letting them realize that like absolutely they can change the world. Kids are amazing. And it's just, it's incredible how much we waste their time in school. I felt like my time was entirely wasted throughout high school, to be perfectly honest. It truly was. And we had five years of it uh, because the system was different back then. And it's awful. And I really feel for kids, but I was a, a kid of absolutely white privilege and, and a lot of different privileges. And I don't face the same kind of structural disadvantagement that way too many people face yet I also suffered. So I get it. Like it's, it's really, really, really something that needs to change. 
And it needed to change before COVID, obviously, but I think things are really going to be forced, unfortunately. Um, but so it's like, how do we respond? But let's get to that a little bit later, because I think that needs a lot of unpacking as well. Wh whose quote turn is it? I think it's your turn. I'm going to throw one at you. So I, I have just really simple ones. That's cool. My second one comes from Socrates. Education is the kindling of a flame not the filling of a vessel. Uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, I think it's just when you look into the wisdom of a child's eyes, you don't like, they know so much. And, and as, as we go through school, um, yeah, it just, we seem to dampen that flame bit by bit at every stage, the, the candle or the flame gets sort of slightly more dampened as they go into more and more structured um, and, and rigid kind of processes of education. Um, and yeah, when like play-based learning, a huge fan of it. And I'm sure you've read Lifelong Kindergarten and the work with sort of uh, Riznik no. and, and MIT and, and what they're basically proposing, uh, proposing is that like, the, the education at kindergarten is, is the best education because kids have so much freedom to choose and to follow and the educators go to them and their interests and build the learning experience around it. And there's play and there's curiosity and there's inquiry and, you know, and it's all sort of blended together and it's transdisciplinary and, you know, and you, you kind of take and follow its interests. And the further you go up through the school system, the worst that like that just gets picked apart and suddenly you have a curriculum and you have a syllabus and you have, you know, things that you need to answer in an exam and an exam question that's worth two points and four points and six points and eight points. And suddenly everything is completely structured for you. And when I used to teach A-level, again, you were teaching these P paragraphs and, and the kids that could just do this formulaic means, they would get a good grade. But I was like, what are you thinking? What are you learning? What do you care about? Like, what do you want to know? <laughs> and the older they get, the worse yeah. it kind of gets with that piece. And so one of the things, and, and again, I think, uh, I think it might've been one of our mutual friends who basically said, you know, at the absolute time of high school, when, whether it's A-levels, AP, whether it's IB, whatever it is, whatever system and wherever you are in the world, the time when the high school and the kid is the most ripe has the or a student a young adult at that time has the most amount of knowledge and the most amount of power to actually be able to contribute and do something in the world we lock them up to revise for exams yeah so what why why are they not contributing out into <laughs> to the world nor do we give them the right to vote which to me seems absolutely ludicrous. Like the number of 16 year olds that I've met in my life who are dramatically more knowledgeable, intelligent, capable of critical thinking, of deep analysis, of being able to compare and contrast the different policies, characteristic characters of the people uh, running vis-a-vis -vis, like the vast majority of adults is crazy. It's just absolutely nuts. I think it'd be, one of the most transformative things we could do in the entire world is to give kids the right to vote and then do amazing social science education. I think we would have a completely different planet. I think if you get kids at the right age when they're really, really interested in the world and they're really coming to face with the fact that the adults are really kind of lying to them in many, in many ways, uh, definitely aren't ethical <laughs> in many ways, uh, certainly aren't acting as good role models, and that they can affect change themselves. It, they can, I, I think that once kids realize that, like how the world 
is. And once they're given an opportunity to actually make change when they're still really motivated and they're not distracted and stressed by all the exam stuff and not distracted and stressed by the need to compete and get a job, uh, but are actually like at their most engaged in life in the world, they will absolutely vote. And we will see voting rates change completely. And I really think you'd see a complete shift in uh, political discourse in society. To me, that's one of the most important changes that we could ever call for. But it's not even on the car. It's not even on the table. Nobody even talks about that. And we're not close to there. We're, we're still at the stage of trying to give kids like a decent education. Yeah. And I think I've, I've got a quote here that I was using, <laughs> and this is not one of my quotes, but basically um, jo uh, Jamie uh, Sarai Margolin, who um, I think is one of the activists from the US on climate change, said we had no power in creating the systems that are destroying our worlds and futures. And yet we're, we are we are and will be paying the biggest price for older generations recklessness. And I think it totally backs up. They are going to be inheriting the decisions that are being made. And so if you actually think about voting for the younger generation, but the younger generation voting themselves about what it is that they need and want, you will get a big change because, yeah, invariably, the bit that I find really uh, so sad, and this is why I think this idea of pedagogy of hope and transformative education, where you have got the possibility to create agency and, and uh, for, for young people moving forward, is the fact that it must be terrifying to be a 16 year old at this point in time a 15 year old a 14 year old because they know what's going on with climate change they can understand and read the headlines they know exactly what's happening and they can see the weather outside politically they know what's going on they can see what's happening around the world like no other generation before and and again this kind of lack of sincerity and then you add covid onto the top of that whereby people don't know you know what's happening to universities online offline and then the digital divide for people not even being able to sort of access education in so many parts of the world um it must be quite terrifying and so we do have psychologically i think a responsibility to actually be able to care for and instill in young people this idea that actually there is a future still for them um but that takes a lot of care <laughs> Um, and, and, and a very different type of pedagogy than learn this, quote this in an exam, do this kind of stuff. It's, it's, it's a very different approach to the why of education. Um, and I think we have to get back to um, really a deep sense of the sort of moral purpose of education for individuals and for their communities and for the world at large, rather than this very sort of market-based education reform um, that, that is going on. It needs to be, there needs to be much more of an essence of community and empowerment um, for that, yeah. If you were to like talk to, I don't know, like a 15 year old and they were to ask you, like, what do you think I should focus on? Like, what do you think? Like, okay, school, like, okay, I'm going to learn some stuff. I'll learn some academic things. But like, what do you think I need to know for life? And what do you think, like, what do you think I should focus on in terms of my own growth and development? How do you answer kind of questions like that? Oh, it's so hard because there's so much out there. Um, yeah. And I think... I mean, there's the bit about actually kind of being connected to who you are and yourself and that sense of identity and 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 having confidence in yourself. And I think that's knocked out of young people um, very easily. Um, and so I think, I mean, it's very difficult to to sort of be an active 
um, actor in your own life if you are you know suffering or if you're not sure <laughs> who you are or if you don't have that kind of solid base so I think sort of there's definitely that bit where where young people do need to look inside and we I don't think we take that much time necessarily in formal education to really kind of sit with oneself and to think about who I am my place in the world my identity how I connect with others who am I as who, who am I as a learner how do I learn how how do I re react and respond and I know that's part of growing up but I feel like we could spend a little bit more time on that sort of social emotional awareness um and then I, I would say we should spend an enormously <laughs> greater amount of time yeah. Honestly, I would spend like 50 to 75%. Yeah. And then I think it's about like the sort of what problems and what things, um, there's some quote about, you know, what problem is it that you want to look at in the world? What are you interested in? Like, what is your direction for this? Because not everyone is going to be good at everything or can do everything. You know, that that just is is evident but so what is it that you're interested what problems are you interested in solving and and where are you able to go and I think it's that delicate balance between taking the passion uh, of of students um but also how do you also introduce them to things that they might not also know about so how do you offer opportunities to explore and to get to know other worlds that you know offer them a taster of something that they might go gosh I've never heard of this before I'm really excited by this this is sort of taking me into um you know a new space to learn something um but yeah to me it's about like there's a responsibility I, I, I yeah to actually kind of figure out where, where your place is in the world and what you want to do. And I think very much to also understand what that place means in terms of unpacking privileges, un unpacking um, biases, unpacking prejudice, unpacking, you know, the sort of, there's a, there's a big socio-political dynamic around that. And I think to be aware of that one as well. I, I we should open a school. Uh, we're, <laughs> we're in total agreement. <laughs> I think you have a, a quote for me. Yes. Okay. So I have got one from, um, it's a book called Radical Hope. It's written by a guy called um, Kevin McGannon. And I just read this one line. I underlined it. It's a very short one. You'll be pleased to know. Um, okay. But the revolution is in the detail. Oh, I actually quite like that. Um, I uh, have a bad reputation for planning. I had this stupid nickname of planning Manning in the past um, because I, I think it's extremely important to be very, 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 very mindful of details and, and how things work on the ground operationally. When, when we're talking about change, especially, um, I think a lot of people who direct change have like uh, these great big picture visions and some people can like put them into concrete action, but like making it actually work is like the, it is such on the ground work often with individual students in the context of education. And it's re the details do matter. How like a given child interprets a concept is going to have enormous implications for their understanding of that concept, how they can apply it, use it or not, uh, whether, they, whether they get it or not. So of course the details matter. Um, and I think I would go so far as to say that the, the, when we're talking about details, we need to talk about each individual child. Uh, and systems aren't good at looking at kids like that. They see them as unit parts in a, in a structured 
process with outputs and inputs and what we need our to see schools as is complex adaptive systems where we're able to constantly shift and adapt in agile ways to the needs of the the, the humans in the system students the most and most schools don't do that at all yeah no i i when i reflect on this and i think i'm glad you brought up the the systems thinking and systems change model so um, again, you can have big thoughts about change and what is needed. And so I go back to Simon Sinek's, you know, the why, the what, and the how. Yeah. And I feel like so far we're really gathering momentum a, a, around the why. Like it's, it's very, <laughs> you know, there are yeah. so many writers from so many different disciplines, so many people talking about this. And the big why is kind of there. We do need different systems. We, we need different systems within the world. And therefore, as a byproduct of that, we need different and a different education system in order for this, this volatile, unknown, complex um, and ambiguous future. However, the what, there's some wrangling around it. Is it project-based learning? Is it um, you know, self-directed learning? Is it this, that, the other? And again, you can go down a complete rabbit hole of that and often they become polarized and people put them against each other so if you're pro project-based learning you must be against something else and again I find that a little bit difficult I'm like let's just curate the learning let's see what makes sense for the group that you have at the time in the context that you're in for the things that you're trying to learn and here's your toolkit <laughs> and there's a variety of array but if you've got the big why as your guiding point then you can curate the what I think the biggest issue on a lot of the change is in the how and this is where the detail is there. And that actually, I'm going back to the transformative piece for educators, for the mental models that people have about how you actually do the practice, because it isn't, I think because school has become so, this is the standards that there are, and this is the process, and here's the policy, etc. The actual practice of how we do that transformative education, how we do inclusive and culturally responsive pedagogy, how we actually are able to curate our, our classes and really respond exactly to what you were saying to the needs of each and every child is such a, an incredible art and science of, of very experienced and brilliant teachers. And many of those are not able to practice that <laughs> to the extent that they would like to in the systems that they are in. Um, but again, that that real sort of attention and, and I'm a big picture thinker, thinker and I love to make sort of big models and big proclaim um, proclamations. My wife, however, is so detail oriented. It's unbelievable. Good balance. <laughs> it is a good balance generally, <laughs> although yeah. we can get some fights about how we do certain Who does the dishes? Uh, definitely she does. <laughs> yeah, or, I'm gonna, I have this great vision for a cake and I'm going to make six cakes today. And then, yeah, I know. Yeah, exactly. Go. And then, yeah, then I'm taught to clean up properly, um, et cetera. But it's, um, yeah. And so when we were looking at culturally responsive pedagogy and I asked her, how does she do it? She's, she's an introvert. And to me, she's one of the people I learned the most from in terms of education. Her students adore her. And, you know, there's, there's just something magical about the classroom and the community that she creates. And so, yeah. So I asked her to sort of write down her principles. And gosh, when you actually look about how the revolution is in the details, I'll, I'll read you just a couple of what, where they're at because she just put seven things down. And again, it was about practice of principles, not about a policy or a process. So the first one was about creating a community of learning from the very beginning, which includes ideas of hospitality for students, 
um, about exploring identities, regardless of what you're teaching, about shared ownership of experiences, about there being absolutely no judgment within that space, and how you interpret the curriculum together. And it really doesn't matter which curriculum or what you are doing, but how do you make sense and make meaning of it as a group together? So that was just the first one <laughs> with all these sort of many details. The second one, which I love, was assume multiple truths. And I think when you're actually trying to work, particularly when you've got a very diverse background, and, and I would say any class is diverse. <laughs> um, but course, obviously, yeah. yeah, I mean, she's been working in an international school with many different um, students from many different countries. But I, I would say, regardless, you have a diverse group of people who yeah, have a, every group of humans is neurodiverse, at least. Exactly. So therefore, so assuming multiple truths, um, really sort of important. The third one, and again, she's gone into more detail about this, identifies, identities are complex and not for the teacher to define. And again, this mm. idea that you are not the person that is actually going to or has the right to say anything about another person's identity or make judgment or thought on that one. And so you keep open that space because especially in transformation, you know, in transformative communities, you really also have to allow people to grow and adapt and, and, and shift and all of this kind of stuff, this fixed idea of identity and what that means is problematic. Questions, not answers, it's fairly obvious. Um, linking experiences to reveal common humanity was another one that she talked about where how do you, despite the fact that there may be very diverse ones, kind of come into this kind of common world. So that's a Hannah Arendt idea about how do you bring that together to actually make this kind of common humanity core of your community and of your learning and of your different um, experiences of your students. Creating spaces of vulnerability. And the last one is about fostering solidarity. And at that point, this is like, how do you really say that this is a, a group that will stand up for each other, that has solidarity for each other, that continues um, beyond the classroom. This has really been a period of reflecting and learning for us all. One of the issues I've been reflecting on is the digital divide during the global pandemic. Let's be real. No one knows what going back to school is going to look like, but the dynamics of the virus remain the same, and teachers and children will probably get sick, and many millions of children will likely need to learn from home. That means connecting to the internet at home will likely become truly essential for the first time in the history of schooling, indeed in the history of the world. In fact, more than 9 million American children can't access the internet from their homes. More than 9 million children won't be able to engage in online learning at all. More than 9 million children will be forced to go to school and will likely be punished if they don't. These outcomes, by the way, are structurally racist. Between 20 to 35% of Native American, Black, and Hispanic children lack either access to a computer, the internet, or both at home. That needs to change. As the world copes with COVID-19 and America comes to a reckoning regarding racial injustice, the people at Apple have been doing a lot of reflecting too. Apple stands for certain core values. Everyone knows Apple is on the face of the earth to make great products. But Apple's also here to make a positive difference in society as well as make a profit. That's another Apple core value. And leaders live their values. That's why Apple is committed to connecting every child in America to their classrooms. And that's why I'm here to announce that Apple is giving every child in America that needs one a free MacBook Air. And 
On top of that, Apple is committed to providing unlimited high-speed home internet access to those kids until they graduate high school. Apple cares. Think justice. Sorry, yeah, just kidding. But imagine if Apple did that. Apple just made $60 billion in the last quarter. That's like three months, by the way. Apple has a net worth of a trillion dollars. That number is well beyond what the human mind is capable of comprehending, but to put it simply, Apple now has the financial capacity to solve many of the world's most pressing problems by itself. It could solve America's childhood digital divide for about $10 billion, which might sound like a lot of money to you or me, but it's really nothing. It's like me giving a homeless man a dime and patting myself on the back, except in my analogy, Apple probably wouldn't even look at the homeless man in the first place. I see little evidence that Apple cares about kids at all. Not really, not if they're honest with themselves. And you might be like, so what? Apple's a tech company, not an NGO. Well, what I would say to that is that we need to start looking at all societal actors as part of our community and ask that those with the most means do their part to support the community. These big tech companies are serial tax evaders. They utterly manipulate our lives to their ends through data, through ads, through the power of corporate consolidation. And we should either expect that they play a moral role or break them up. If they cannot change and become good, we will need to dismantle them before their power becomes unstoppable. Going back, I honestly cannot comprehend having the capacity, literally, the power, the ability to help millions of kids and not be tripping over myself trying. Tim Cook, you are missing a huge opportunity. This is the best chance Apple will have to build goodwill for a generation. Apple would be remembered as emerging heroically, rising to the occasion, saving the day. Songs would be sung for ages. What long-term profit potential? But Apple is an American corporation. Maybe it's structurally too constrained, too myopically focused on the next quarterly report. Maybe one person, one computer. Steve Jobs' original vision will never come to pass due to Apple's own greed and tunnel vision. But anyway, the problem of the digital divide is real. Millions of kids probably will be cut off from learning within a couple months. I'm serious. And this is a global problem. It's not an American or a Canadian or a British or a North American or a Mexican or whatever. This is a global problem. There's an organization out there called Project Connect that's working on mapping the world's schools. Part of that entails tracking how many young people have internet access. They estimate that 364 million young people between the ages of 15 to 24 around the world lack internet access. So I don't know how many of like those kids are in school, but it's a lot. It's many millions of kids. So please... Consider donating money or high-quality computer devices to organizations that help kids get online to learn. They're easy to find. I list some organizations, but they might not want to be associated with my insolence at mocking the almighty Apple, whose products I do legit love and plan to continue to buy, by the way. I'm just super disappointed in Apple right now, and Google, and Microsoft, and Facebook, Amazon, and basically every tech company on Earth, and really most of the leaders of the world, really. But it's because we accept corporate plunder and plutocratic government as legitimate and normal. Some even promote it as a good, and we don't hold leaders to account that such situations happen. And maybe Apple does care. Maybe Apple's love language is affirmations, not gifts. Who knows? I don't know. Anyway, Apple is not coming to save the day. But imagine if they did. Hey, Apple, think different. 
the world has few true leaders right now, I think it's time we learn to lead ourselves. I think that's brilliant. I, I would encourage her to like uh, flesh that out and publish it. Um, what I really appreciate, I mean, I think you kind of like jumped over a couple really crucial ones that you take as just like axiomatic assumptions about how things should work, but I think are actually quite counter hegemonic vis-a-vis the dominant model and how most people act. And one of them was questions, not answers. That's not small. That's not obvious. That's not how most people, most teachers look at their work. Uh, And what I really like about that combined with all the other things is it really seems to me to amount to creating the conditions for amazing psychological safety for kids. Like it sounds like an environment where the the power dynamic is equalized. I mean, so there's always going to be a dynamic, but it should be based on competence not just on, not on just some arbitrary kind of like I'm older and I have the credentials kind of uh, thing. Cause that absolutely undermines your credibility with the kids to begin with makes you a terrible teacher. Um, but also like when we have equal power and like, and, and all truths count, all identities matter, all opinions are, are have merits uh, and the ideas are challenged, not the people who are sharing the ideas, then kids have the freedom to take risks. And when kids have the freedom to take risks, that's when creativity and critical thinking really, really shoots off. That's excellent teaching. We need more teachers like her, honestly. (laughs) But it's so hard to train. It is so difficult because again, when you look at, she had to go through the um, UK PGCE criteria or the qualified teacher status and again it was this tick box exercise she could write an appropriate email to uh parents and it's it's yes that is important you know and professional standards are important but we spend a lot of time looking at those sorts of things and very little time looking at actually how do you create that kind of community and and what does it mean and you have to be challenged and changed and vulnerable and you know go through a transformational shift yourself as an educator in that position you know absolutely and as like a social science teacher like I I take I I really appreciate that especially because like one of the most important things if you want to be effective as a social science teacher is to not be an ideological dominator in the classroom and that often, 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 often happens because I don't know why I'm not going to give my theories as to why, but it often does happen and it's a problem. And, and um, in particular, what, what I think is really important is to give students with, with opposing ideological perspectives space to share and to grow as well. And, and when you do that, it's very interesting. So I'm, I naturally lean quite left. I'm quite progressive, but I've learned an enormous amount from my conservative students, especially in Taiwan. A lot of students in Taiwan are very conservative. And if you want to help those kids, you need to take their perspective seriously. You need to start where they're at and help them grow. And I actually learned an enormous amount about like libertarian theory not that i'm interested in that and and all and like political economy to be honest i actually learned quite a lot of things about like how interest rates work and like the role of the fed and all sorts of stuff because i was open to learning and and that i really think is the attitudinal disposition that teachers need to have we need to value all of our kids and it's not about us like i know everything and i'm going to fill the vessel it's not about that we need to light the flame cool so have you got the next one? I do. I got a long one. 
Exactly. This comes from uh, John Taylor Gatto in one of my favorite books of all time, Weapons of Mass Instruction. Um, and he writes, if you put fleas in a shallow container, they jump out. But if you put a lid on the container for just a short time, they hit the lid trying to escape and quickly learn not to jump so high. They give up their quest for freedom. After the lid is removed, the fleas remained imprisoned by their own self-policing. So it is with life. Most of us let our fears or the impositions of others imprison us in a world of low expectations. Mm -hmm. I had two immediate thoughts on this one. And the first one came from traveling in Northern Thailand and visiting um, an elephant sanctuary. And you're probably wondering where on earth this is going now. Uh, <laughs> no, I know where it's going. It's, it's the, um, the And um, we were, we, had, we watched as part of the experience of visiting and learning um, this awful, awful video about how elephants are tamed. And, and how they're domesticated. And it, it involves a week of being tied up, beaten. And elephants are one of my favorite animals. You just look at them in the wild, their eyes, their souls, their communities, their intelligence, their memories, amazing. And, and these are animals that are then taken and, and, and beaten and, and starved and isolated from their herds, etc. And what then happens is that produces you knock the soul out of the elephant. <laughs> they then don't actually have to have the elephant chained up like you would have sort of, you know, wild elephant is quite potentially dangerous, but this elephant becomes domesticated because that heart and soul of the very essence of the animal has therefore been done. So then you can just, with a little bit of a smack, you can get them to walk and create the rides for the people going around. And I just, I, again, learned a lot about elephants and, and how horrific that practice is. But to me, it's a huge metaphor for, again, a lot of what pe when people are domesticated within a school situation and you look at some of these kids that come in are so bright and incredible and bouncy usually. <laughs> they're yeah, often, they're often very bouncy, bouncy, yeah. And, 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 and yeah. then that takes me back to the second thing that I thought about, which was why I had to leave the school that I was in in London, because we became an academy or these kids were put in uniform and they were 11 and they were made to walk around in single straight silent lines and again <laughs> and I have bouncy kids because they're 11 and of course they're bouncy and I'm just like oh my goodness and then so thinking about how how school does the the stuff that is just not developmentally appropriate for students. And then that kind of knocks yeah. some of the life out of them and some of the soul out of, out of students because they were in this very sort of narrow band, not just in terms of what they learn, how they learn, but also within the, the community and the structures that they are in. And in the UK, it's, it's largely uniformed and, you know, sort of quite strict and authoritarian. And, and again, people will have arguments for and against that. And again, I'm not absolutist in some of all of these things, but it just, I couldn't have these poor 11 year olds in single straight silent lines when it goes against everything that adolescent development theory tells you about what kids need, how they learn and their need for embodied learning. 
and physical learning. And we used to have 30 in, 30 out, 30 in, 30 out. And these kids needed to move. But if they moved, then you'd have to give them a negative mark and a couple of negative marks into detention. And you're just like, but they're be 11-year-olds. They should be learning. They should be in different spaces. They should be having freedom to move. Why are they wearing a tie that is sort of choking them? And, and you know, the very sort of embodiment or metaphor for, yeah, this kind of freedom being curtailed. Yeah, the, the British systems in particular are really like, they're really problematic. I'm sorry. Like, so like I had this amazing experience where I got to teach this brilliant group of like students from Hong Kong at a summer camp that I was working at. And they all went to like one of like the top boys school. I think it was the top boys school in Hong Kong. And it's just like classic British, like let's turn them into like, I don't know, like Prince Charles kind of schools. None of the children were allowed to run at their school. There was a no running rule. What, what kind of school doesn't allow children to run? Do you know anything about neurogenesis? Do you know anything about the basic needs of a child? It, it's just ridiculous. And, and these are great examples of how schools are largely constructed or were largely constructed for like the scientific management of a mass population. It's about creating habits of conformity and the understanding that I need to be controlled basically, rather than learning self-control, rather than learning self-discipline, rather than learning agency and self-direction, we learn, we teach kids to just be responding to power and to obey. That's, I think that's anti-educational. I think it's anti-human. I also think it's totally unnecessary. Kids can learn uh, self-control. It's very, very hard. It takes a very long time. It takes longer for boys because of developmental like differences. Um, uh, neurologically, but it, it, it is doable. And once kids eventually learn that, that those become the preconditions for self-direction mm. and for guiding and designing one's own life. And that's what we want. We want kids to flourish. We want every kid to grow up, to be their best self. We want them to be the beautiful flowers that they actually are. Um, but like, yeah, it's all about creating the conditions. I, I've like I've, I've been doing lots of work on designing curriculum, but to me, the organization and the structure is also the curriculum. And you have to look at it that way because again, and, and it would be informal league or it would be um, uh, the hidden curriculum or whatever it is that you want to kind of label it as such, but kids are apprentices within a community and within an organization. And again, if you're, I think your, your comment about the boys is really interesting because actually, if you are still banding people, still in age groups really rigidly they're not learning from and with older peers to kind of actually have that behavior model and, and in a learning process yeah. and you're also assuming and I think you you mentioned it earlier like the prefrontal cortex is so like the, the development of it is so different for different people between the ages of about 12 and 25 so again, we're picking sort of two, <laughs> two 12-year-olds to get together. And even two 16-year-olds, everyone presumes that once you suddenly turn magically turn 16, that suddenly your prefrontal cortex is there and that you must be therefore capable of making good decisions. Um, and yes, there is additional responsibility that one should take. But again, the difference in, in, in two 16-year-olds and their prefrontal cortex development is ginormous. So again, making all these standardized rules and and having everything kind of set within age bands and, and not as part of a kind of community of learning. And again, if you go back to indigenous ways of learning, if you go back to learning from many different other communities and cultures, you get this idea of apprenticeship within a community and learning from 
different intergenerational learning and, and, and from experts, but that also really models it. And I always used to notice it with my kids in London, if they'd gone out to their work experience in, in year 10, which I think is grade nine, um, then because they'd had just some one-on-one -on -one adult interaction within a different environment, the difference that it made for them when they came back was huge in terms of maturity, in terms of sort of thinking about who they were. And that was often the turning point of, again, different choices being made, et cetera. So again, why we don't do more of that in school, I don't know. I agreed. Did you have one more quote for me? I do. <laughs> I have my final one. Um, so you're, you're about the same age as me. We've just, we've, we've hit you into mean our old? early forties. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> So I don't know if you remember this band from the 1990s or so, the Manic Street Preachers. No. No. Sorry. Okay, must have been. Okay. Grew up in you totally different cultural context. Yes. All right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and a band which I guess talked about sort of social justice issues and 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 things in the 1990s. But one of my favorite songs from them, and this is where it is from, is "If you tolerate this, then your children will be next." Oh. Wow. Okay. That's, that's a good line. Um, mm -hmm. I think that's quite interesting. Yeah, I, I think I've been thinking a lot lately about like, leadership and the lack of it and like what the adults are like and like how I felt about the adults when I was a kid and how I feel about being like lumped in with these people now that I look like them, even though I'm definitely not one of these, it really bothers me. And like, yeah, like the things we accept so many wrongs in our society and then we normalize them and we in, in educational processes, we often don't challenge them at all. And then we, we just say, this is just how it is. The world's just unfair. And, and then, yes, we just we're passing on. We're reproducing inequities. We're reproducing just structures that don't help engage the human spirit to its for full flourishing and yeah, it's just it, to me. It's all about reproduction. It's all about like how we are going, how we've been stuck doing the same things again and again and again, over and over and over, cyclically for generations. And if the adults don't change, the kids are just going to keep doing it. It's up to us. But it's interesting because then when you look at it, the adults who uh, I would, uh, yeah, like yourself, um, are labeled then rebellious or subversive or radical or any of these things which are seen potentially as bad and they are potentially negative when you're in oppressive structures of schooling and, and all of that, the people that sort of speak up, stand out, question ideas, question orthodox. And, and it's really interesting when you kind of look and you mentioned leadership. Um, I was again thinking about post-heroic leadership when you said that. And I don't know if you know this guy, Welby Ings, no. who's sort of written this book, Obedient Teaching. You have the best books. <laughs> You've like so many. Okay. Anyway, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, but he, he, he's a really interesting educator from New Zealand, and uh, he 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 couldn't read in, um, until he was fifteen. Oh wow. Okay. And so he was one of the people that the system just didn't work yeah. for, um, and talks and encourages uh, the rebel teachers to do this. And and just as I flicked open to sort of have a look at these kind of quotes, I've also got Yong Zhao's book, "An Education Crisis Is a Terrible Thing to Waste." Mm. 
And he's, he's quoting um, postman and um, Weingartner from 1969. And again, this is where our collective wisdom is all there. We know everything we need to know. <laughs> we just need to apply it and scrap the last sort of neoliberal last 20 years. But again, he's, they're recommending in 1969 that educators be subversive, that they challenge the accepted norms of education, which requires a willingness to be radical, to go beyond the typical instinct, to tinker around the edges and instead reinvent school for students. Mm. 1969. Yeah. <laughs> um, and again, you're just like, OK, this is a bit of history repeating itself. But how do we have that kind of post-heroic leadership in schools where the space is made for both staff and students um, to actually question the orthodoxies to question whether you need the school uniform to question why we're doing stuff that way to question what it is that we're studying and how we're studying and and yeah to make sense of that together as a community and to make sense of their own learning and and their purpose of learning within that institution um and, it, and within the yeah community context that they're in um and it's a really interesting one because you just notice yeah, when you open that up and when you trust the people who are actually the recipients of the education and mostly, you know, the students, but also staff. And again, I would like them to be together in a community as part of it rather than pitted against yeah. each other. But when you trust students and you trust staff and you say, what is it that you need? What is it that you want? The answers very much come for the kind of like you, we will design this type of schools that actually we want for the future because they know and it goes back to your earlier one <laughs> about like you know the the flame um uh, rather than the vessel sort of lighting the flame rather than pouring something into an empty vessel but that wisdom that is there already exists within the communities within the people themselves within you know within the history of pedagogical theory it's all there um, and, and, and the current stuff for neuroscience, the things that are coming out is just proving it all to be correct. Um, and therefore we need to kind of go back. And um, a good friend of mine, Elle, says, you know, the, the, the actual, um, the, the root of the word radical is itself roots. And part of me thinks we really need to go back to <laughs> being radical is actually going back to our roots and what we actually know to be true about humans, about humanity, about development, about inclusiveness, before, <laughs> before all these horrible sort of structures of either colonialism created, you know, sort of race and, and all the inequality that has then, you know, been generated from that and, and is so pervasive in today's society. Um, yeah, the, the wisdom that, that was always there, but that we somehow seem to have blocked out. Yeah, it, like we're, I, I couldn't agree more. Absolutely, I so believe in humans especially young humans like they, they've just the massive potential all i see is genius when i look at kids even like the kids who like are traditionally awful at school they're brilliant at something they just don't know themselves yet and we need to help them figure themselves out figure out what their magic power is and then how do you grow um in an authentic truthful kind of way i think a lot of like kids end up like leaning towards like narcissism in large part because we, we're not good at helping them um, be truthful when it comes to self-examination. And I think that's a really important part of the educational endeavor as well. I think we really need to help kids develop self-awareness and understanding in an honest way. Uh, or you get people like Donald Trump eventually. People are just lying to themselves uh, and uh, just 
have no clue how to like live in the world and just, just useless humans, right? Uh, we can create much, we can help grow beautiful humans if we help the human itself, like each individual person figure out how it is that they need to grow. But like, that's really not how our systems work. And instead we have these like really pressurizing like curriculum and, and assessment structures. And the evidence is that mental negative mental health outcomes are increasing either they're increasing or we're more and more aware of them doesn't matter it's something like 30 percent of kids have an anxiety disorder something like 20 percent of kids suffer from clinical depression uh sometime during their childhood i spent four years clinically depressed i care about this i understand how awful it can be a teen takes their life in the united states every 100 minutes so even if schools aren't the cause, to any extent that we can be part of the solution, we must, right? Like this yeah. is awful. And, and even if you don't care about mental health, even if all you care about is like, let's create good workers, they're not even, schools aren't even good at that anymore because workplaces need absolute like cognitive flexibility to people who have amazing social emotional skills, critical thinking skills, creativity, who can innovate, who can design, think, who, who are self-aware and in the mismatch between like the outcomes and outputs that schools are intended to produce and those that are needed by like say capitalism uh, are totally misaligned now. So it's in literally everyone's interest, even if it was once in the interest of like the capitalist owners, if you want to take that perspective to create like a, this horrible system that just creates compliant workers, that's no longer the need it's in literally everyone's interest to change education everyone the kids most of all and it really really bothers me that like we have so many kids in such pain and honestly it really bothers me that like in my last school i was part of that process of like overpressuring students of like you have to get fives on your ap's and da, da, da. Like, who cares actually i didn't i didn't care about the fives on their ap's i cared about them producing good work but i think honestly i was one of the people who put too much pressure on the kids and i think if oh, i don't think i know if i ask them they'll say yes you gave us too much homework and they also thank me but i'm not sure they should be thanking me for that to be honest it like it's one of my regrets and like but there's no point in regretting things. We need to learn, we need to grow, we need to move forward, right? So like, how do, what do I do with that? Well, what I, what I think I need to do is learn more about how do we help support mental health for kids in schools. Yeah, and, and that mental health piece is not just how do we fix the problems, but how do we actually create the conditions whereby hopefully the, the problems don't manifest themselves or if they do in not so strong ways because actually our classrooms, our schools, our educators are all safe spaces and psychologically safe for young people. Um, I was thinking about that, um, uh, an idea that Todd Rose, who's at Harvard- Love came Todd up with Rose. Of, I know, <laughs> so that equity of fit. And actually, um, I really like, you know, having, having seen at your school now about the fact that people can actually decide what does excellence look for, like for them, what does uh, the standard actually is for them, they can choose kind of where they're hitting. And when you're a coach and a mentor teacher, you can kind of say, hey, you're, you know, you're, you're, you're doing yourself short on this, actually, you know, you can do more and, and you know, why aren't we kind of putting this up, but yeah, being able to have that flexible and agile system rather than the sausage factory of this is it, this is the test, end of story. 
um, because nothing is like that in real life. Well, very few things are like that in real life. Um, another uh, a good friend of mine, educator Stuart McAlpine, who's currently head of the um, Green School in New Zealand. Oh, cool. um, he talks about, um, and I love this phrase, rigor mortis. Um, so thinking about rigor and every time you kind of say, okay, why don't we take the pressure off a little bit more? Do we need all of this content in the curriculum? Are, you know, do we have to cover 10 subjects? You know, why could we not link things up and perhaps do slightly more sort of transdisciplinary? Could we go for a different approach, whether it's, you know, project-based learning, whether it's product-oriented assessment, whatever it is. And everyone says, oh, well, then, you know, how will you get the rigor? And, and, and this rigor mortis, <laughs> it's the death of all of the changes that actually need to be had in the system because it always comes back to being able to prove a standardized goal because that's how you can measure things very easily. But actually, if you go back to this equity of fit, we don't need to be measured in such a way. We actually need to be just, yeah, grown and, and for, for ourselves as individuals to be able to contribute um, in in society and for humanity in the best way that we possibly can. Yeah, I, I, I very much agree with that. It's like, I, I think it's definitely possible to be rigorous in the sense of taking like the foundational knowledge very seriously uh, as an expectation mm -hmm. within any given kids project or collaborative project. Um, and still do really, really amazing, innovative, like student design project-based inquiry-based learning uh, that where kids really learn deeply. I don't see these as incompatible, but I think your, your point, his point is really that the, when we are focusing on rigor as like the mo most important thing, we tend to like the, the, the system incentives and directions and inputs tend to like shape our, like the way that we look at the problems um, in system sort of centric ways. And they kind of like, anytime we like are leaning towards change, we get like pulled back. Um, because of that kind of like worry that we're not being sufficiently rigorous. I really, I know for a fact you can do both. You, you absolutely can yeah. and it's way better. And I think you can also achieve more depth or academic rigor actually by loosening the structures yes. because again when you actually sort of say to kids where do you want to go and if you're genuinely passionate about a subject and 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 you're engaged and you are <laughs> and you're using partnerships inside of the school outside of the school different resources and, and you're building something that matters to you you tend to go far above and beyond mm. where any curriculum standard is and I know um, another friend of mine said but what if I want to give the like what if I don't want to give them an A what if I want to give them like <laughs> something way beyond that what if I don't want to give them a seven in the IB I want to give them a 10 because actually there's there's no pathway to actually acknowledge beyond even where those standards are if you've got everyone in a very standardized system that at this point everyone does this because you know and that's why again I sort of err towards a bit more the sort of mastery approach in terms of have you mastered this can we see this like and then you move on at your own pace um, I remember you telling me about this like teacher, I think it was in like Japan, working in an IB school who took like kind of like a, a student like self-directed kind of approach within the IB mm. and like it worked wonders. Yeah, Jaya. <laughs> yeah, tell us about yeah, that. Uh, yeah, so um, Jaya was in um, UWC Isaac, she's left um, now. Um, and and she's, she's again an educator that I have learned so much from. Um, 
And one of the things I love about her, she talks about education as shapeshifters. Mm. <laughs> so that at one minute you're a coach, the next minute you're a mentor, the next minute, you know, you're sort of, you're teaching, the next minute you're learning and how how the shapeshifting that has to go on as a teacher regardless. Um, well, that one, again, it was, I think in that process, uh, she she had to go through a process of de-learning or unlearning with her students. So again, this idea of how does one learn, how does one access, what is the relationship between the teacher and the student? So they have to kind of reorient that and unprocess and unpack some of the ideas that they've had, perhaps from schooling beforehand, which says, you know, I, <laughs> I'm the teacher, I impart the knowledge, or I give you the things that you have to study, you do those, we tick the box, we move on, and, and that's how we kind of go. So instead, it was like, well, here are the standards, here are ways to access the, the material in the courses, here I am, here are some other teachers, here are, you know, different websites and other educators and how do you curate the learning pathway to get through this syllabus um, that is best for you and again this comes to a sort of negotiated part and again it comes back to this equity of fit you know <laughs> how can you negotiate best with students for example when a deadline should be met when they have done their best work when you know we can move on when they should access material or not the kid that gets you know really works well in the morning versus the kid that works really well at night and how do you make that a lot more flexible so that that self-directed piece is i'm going to learn how to learn and how to access this material and within a safe environment always got your back always here <laughs> you know I yes yeah that's it no that's it we're just here to help you like we're not here to like oh, punish you yeah. for not doing it well enough that's pointless right this isn't jail we're, we're here to like help support your growth and like once that once those conditions prevail like it's amazing what kids will do it truly is like they are really really smart and super creative and brilliant and i i just love it. it what you were saying actually relates to a fourth quote uh, that I have in my long list of quotes. I think I'll just throw in. And it comes from Alvin Toffler, who's like a futurist. He wrote that the illiterate of the 21st century will not be those who cannot read and write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn, and relearn. Yeah, and I think it just, it, it moves swiftly and, and appropriately on from that last piece of conversation is, is you need to create lifelong learners and you need to have that intrinsic motivation to learn and know how to access the learning and, and different things that you need for that. So therefore that approach very much instills a lifelong learning set of skills um, and, and dispositions towards it that will help you because as an adult, I think is it something like 80 or 90% of people that sign up for the, the MOOCs and online learning courses don't. It's like 97. 97. It's even bigger than I Something like that. Know. I'm proud to say I've, I've completed like five or six of those. I've actually completed a whole bunch. Yeah. And I, but you're right. Yeah. Most. Yeah. And, but, but it's that those kind of like, if, if, you know, and maybe people are just getting what they need from them and then moving on or finding out that they're not the right. I actually that, think that's, that's it. Totally fine. Because, you know, some people don't want to go through yeah. the whole process. They've got, a way of thinking or they've got a piece of information that they need and that's part of their kind of curating um their own professional learning and growth but I really, really love talking to you. I mean, it's unfortunate that like our internet connectivity was uh, not uh, uh, complying today, but that's just how the world works and that's okay. It's all about being adaptive, right? Exactly. I think we're just, uh, it's a manifestation of <laughs> the situation most people are in at this moment in time. My final quote would be, I've got Maya Angelou is, is 
do the best you can until you know better. And when you know better, do better. Very well said. Thank you so much for coming on. I think next time uh, you come on, we got to find like a topic that we disagree on. <laughs> okay, okay, we'll find it. Yeah, yeah, just like, I agree with you. I agree with you more. I agree with you more. Anyway, I really appreciate it. Um, I always love talking to you. You're an absolutely fascinating and brilliant human being. Please keep doing the work that you're doing. The world needs you, especially now. Thank you. Thank you. enjoyed this very much. Talk to you soon. So that was World Teacher Podcast, episode number one. I really want to thank Rebecca Warren so very much for coming on. Rebecca, you are awesome. I cannot wait for next time. Uh, to anyone who listened, thanks so much. Uh, and I really must apologize for the poor audio quality and the fact that much of our discussion got so garbled that it couldn't be shared. But that's Zoom life. And anyway, it's my first podcast episode, so what do you expect? You plan and you try, then you reflect and you reiterate, right? And when you fail, you fail forward, and that way things improve and grow organically. Still, I'm like super open to constructive feedback as well as to suggestions for guests and topics, though I'm definitely not lacking in ideas. Um, so yeah, any, anything that you might want to share, please do. Now here's a request. If you enjoyed this episode, or frankly, even if you didn't, I'd really appreciate it if you would click subscribe, especially on Apple iTunes. It's been a super fun, if bumbling, challenge to get this podcast launched. We've been working on it for several months. It's a lot more work than um, it looks like and than I expected. I clearly uh, had no idea what I was doing when I started, and I'm not sure I do at this point either, but I am an excellent learner, and I promise I will get better with practice. I do have to admit, however, that I have absolutely no idea how to go about trying to grow a podcast audience. So if you have any ideas, because like I read a lot, right? And I read a few books on this topic and they basically say the same thing, which is like things uh, like things are, are shared by word of mouth primarily. Like that's more important than advertising. But what really matters is getting somebody who already has a big audience themselves to share. It's like this massive magnifying effect. But it's like, I don't know anybody like that. It's not like I can just like call Drake and be like, yo, can you please tweet this? I don't have... Friends who have lots of friends is how I go about trying to live my life. So anyway, if you have any ideas how I might try to like grow the podcast, I have a lot of like former students in business school, for instance, apply some of that knowledge, please. I'm all ears. Finally, a massive, massive thanks to the two former students I hired to help me get this going. Ina and Amelie, this would not have happened without you. Peace and love. I'm out. Thanks for listening.